From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 51. I know these are tough times. There are a lot of people who are sick and also a lot of people who are frustrated about being cooped up in the house and certainly specific to the topic of these podcasts. There are a lot of players and coaches who are really frustrated that their seasons have wrapped up prematurely in spite of off seasons of hard work to really prepare it. So we're going to do our best to help you uh, kind of weather these tough times by providing some good content. And really, I think we're, we've got a great show today with a, a hidden star in the baseball uh, strength conditioning slash pitching development world, um, a guy from our staff who kind of flies under the radar, but is a huge piece of our success. And I think you're going to see why in this podcast. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. You've got essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's a zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality, so you won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives or added sugar. Um, really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy free, paleo, keto, vegan friendly, um, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, personally, I love it for, for obviously our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, on a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, we split our time between two states, and, and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, so life is inherently crazy, and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens uh, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's, it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, they've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, They'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. Today's guest serves as a strength and conditioning coach and associate pitching coordinator at Cressy Sports Performance Florida. He completed his internship with CSP in the spring of 2018. Prior to joining the staff, he trained and coached high school and college athletes in the New Jersey and New York area. He's also served as an assistant baseball coach at Ridgewood High School in New Jersey and graduated from Gettysburg College in 2014. He's an integral piece of the puzzle with respect to how we evaluate and program for pitchers um, and has really become an important part of our staff as we rolled out a lot more on the skill development and analytics side to complement our strength and conditioning services. So welcome to the show, Mark Lowy. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. You got it. I saw you three hours ago, but we have to act formal like this just to keep it consistent with the other ones we've done. <laughs> um, it's good. It makes it seem more like radio show and I'm calling in. I like it. It's, it's very good. odd. We have Mark in the car on the line. Um, 
so we're going to do our best to give some folks uh, some, some really good content while they're on quarantine to help pass the time while we're waiting for baseball to start back up again. Um, but I think the a really good place to start for this is you and Brian Kaplan, uh, affectionately known as Cap, around the facility have dug really deep um, on, a, on a bigger level than we ever have with respect to pitching analytics. Um, I think we've always talked about Cressy Sports Performance as being a strength and conditioning facility that also does skill development. You know, this is something that's bringing the skill development and analytics side of things on par with strength and conditioning. So let's talk about maybe working backwards from the finished product. What did you guys do this offseason that was so dramatically different than we've done in, in seasons past? Um, sure. So, I mean, a lot of that starts with uh, Cap's prior relationships with a lot of these guys. So uh, he's worked with a lot of these guys in the past and has an idea of, you know, what they're working on and what they've done and things like that. Um, my role a lot of this year was really just trying to bring that to life, uh, especially in the written form, because our big theme was we wanted it to be about the players and player education and being able to give them something at the end of the off season that helped outline what they're good at, uh, what maybe they needed to work on at the beginning of the off season, uh, how we helped them work on that. Um, and then the changes that they actually made so that when they head back to camp, um, they have something they can reference when they get into a tough spot or if they need a couple cues or a couple of remi- couple reminders, whether it's delivery, uh, pitch design, pitch usage, whatever it may be. I think it's always interesting to see the reports that come from elsewhere, whether it's from the team or biomechanics labs or anything like that. I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but my impression of them has always been that they're very segmented, right? You get, you know, data on usage. Hey, your slider is really good. You should throw it more. Or, hey, you should throw a four seam because your spin rate's low and that two seam is, you know, uh, you know, maybe a better fit for you or something like that. There's all these different directions you can go, right? So, um, what, what's your take on that? Do you think that people have a hard time like seeing the synergy across those, those different, you know, spectrums? Or is it just that, you know, some folks maybe, um, you know, choose to highlight individual things as opposed to looking at the big picture? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the easy route a lot of times is just to pull up some of the numbers, um, and let the numbers tell you what's good, what's bad, um, and just go straight from there. So, I know just from talking to a lot of guys this year, when they went back to camp, a lot of them arrived and either in their locker or on their chair or something like that, they just had a printout that uh, had a bunch of numbers and it told them what they were good at, what they were bad at, and that was really it. Um, and that's a pretty, it's a pretty tough view for the player because it just takes the personality out of it. Um, you don't take into account what they feel like they're good at, what they want to do, how they feel when they're actually on the mound and Maybe the data is telling them that they need to throw more breaking pitches when they're behind in the count, but that's something that they've traditionally been really poor at. So um, we always try and take into account the human element of it. Um, and so that way they're, it's easier for them to buy into the numbers when they understand that it's coming um, from an angle that we're taking their personality into it. I think it's, you know, and this maybe leads into my next question is that, so you saw a wide variety of athletes, right? So you saw athletes, you know, like a, like a Kyle Hendricks or a Cluery Kluber who are, you know, basically very heavy students of the game have looked at the stuff meticulously themselves. And, you know, you've met them where they're at and found ways to, you know, effectively kind of put the cherry on the top or, you know, whatever it may be, or, or talk about the synergy, how it relates to their training and all that. And you've also had athletes that either, 
A, are very new to professional baseball and they've never had access to a lot of this data, or, you know, B, there were organizations that just didn't place a high value on it. Um, you know, so what are the commonalities of dealing with these different, like, where does the, where does the pitching relationship begin? How do you guys start the process? Um, so we always try and we always do like subjective before objective. So, um, that's something that Cap's been really good at, and that just goes into building relationships with guys overall. Um, it's important to know just basic things like what was their life on the road? How are they feeling? There's a lot of stuff that you can't get from a box score, uh, box score, stuff that you can't get online, stuff you can't find on Twitter. Um, a lot of stuff the public just doesn't know. Um, simple example is, you know, you have a newborn kid and he's not sleeping at home and that affects your sleep schedule. Um, and you're supposed to go out and pitch a one o'clock game the next day. Uh, that start in the statistics may look really bad, but you can tell us and be like, Hey, you know, that start in Texas in April, I didn't get any sleep. I felt really horrible. So when you look at the data there, understand that that's not the best representation of who I am. Um, so that helps us a lot when we want to then go dig into the numbers because we know that there may be certain stretches that, um, for whatever reason, they weren't that great. So we always ask a guy, like, what was your best stretch and what was your worst stretch? And if it's someone like Mike Soroka, who's dealing with really one year, mm-hmm. he's going to say, well, in these months I was good and these months I didn't feel that like great. Uh, when you're talking about someone like Kyle or someone like Corey who put together careers at this point, uh, they may reference year stretches where they felt great. Um, and it just helps us when we want to go back and compare what they were good at versus what they aren't as good at now. Um, because it's not fair to them for us to just look at the numbers and say, you know, this isn't good and this is good. Uh, we need to take into account what was actually effective uh, when they were doing it. I'm always curious, how often are players surprised at how much you listen during these initial meetings? I, I feel like historically they're talked at a lot with respect to analytics, but no one ever actually asked questions of them. Um, so the first, uh, so the way the reports flow or the first couple of pages are all the physical uh, assessment notes Mm -hmm. and the pages after that are all the conversations that come out of the, what we call just a pitching consult. But the first page of the pitching consult section is something we titled just Mm -hmm. self-assessment, which is I just sit on the computer and I take notes for this hour long meeting. Um, And all the things they list, we take down and we put it in a paragraph form. Um, And there's just different things that, they always drop little good one-liners like miles was a really good one. Uh, Michaelis, when he talked about uh, his four seamer, because we had seen some things in his spin rate uh, that we were a little curious about. So we just wanted to pick his brain and ask how he, how he grips his four seam. And then he said, well, I, I hold my four seam like I'd hold a bird. Like I don't, I don't want it to fly away, but I don't want to crush it either. <laughs> um, so that was something that like, I thought that was really funny and that was useful information, but then I typed it up and put it in the report. So then when he opened up the report and saw that, like he got a big kick out of it. And um, I think that just goes back to building the relationship part too. Miles is never short on one liner. So that's, that's pretty, no. pretty classic. Um, no, he's not, you know, I think there are, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but would you agree that there are a lot of people out there who make bold recommendations on uh, pitch design and or usage based purely on data um, is that, is that a, a common trend that you're seeing right now? Um, yeah, it, it definitely is. And I think just because 
we have all the data um, or someone has all the data doesn't necessarily mean they know how to use it or know what it means. Um, like a good example, one of our big leaguers who's had a pretty good career and um, throws two different fastballs, um, four seam, two seam. And if you wanted to compare those two pitches um, using something like a strikeout rate, um, you would look at one of them and you'd say, well, this one's much better. The the four-seam strikeout rate is right around 50%. Um, I think the two-seam strikeout rate is maybe closer to 10 Um We have the ability to, you can pull up pitch usage charts based on count, uh, which is something that's really important, I think, gets overlooked a lot. But uh, we can pull that up and we see that uh, he uses the four-seam pretty exclusively in two-strike counts, uh, and he uses the two-seam and uh, no strike and one strike counts. Uh, so when you're talking about a statistic like a strikeout percentage, you obviously can't strike someone out when there's less than two strikes. Um, and when you ask him about it, he'll say, well, yeah, I mean, with two strikes, I'm going to try and throw four seams up. I'm going to try and blow someone's doors in um, and get a punch out. Um, when there's a situation that's maybe it's an even count, maybe he's behind in the count, uh, maybe we need a double play, something like that. That's where the two seam comes into play. Um, so if you look at the two seam a little bit deeper, you'll see that, wow, the ground ball rate's really high. The hard contact's pretty low. Um, he does a very good job at throwing it consistently for a strike. The uh, overall strike rate's very high. Um, but if you were to look at those two pitches and just say, well, the four seam strikes guys out 50% of the time and the two seam strikes guys out 10% of the time, he should really only be a four seam guy. That's not the best advice if we don't look deep enough at the numbers. Those are great observations. Um, so I'm, I'm actually really curious. So when you talk to younger pitchers, right? So you're, we've, we've spoken with respect to, you know, established major leaguers, things like that. How much does the simple, you know, A, training status and B, you know, ability to actually throw pitches for strikes impact all of this? Cause I think a lot of people fall in love with the pitch based on what they see on, you know, on the Rapsodo chart that comes out. Um, and in reality, it, you know, it might be nowhere near the strike zone or it may be something that they just aren't confident or it's something that's super erratic because their body's not prepared to execute it over the course of a, you know, an extended season. Is it, is it a markedly different approach when we're talking about younger pros or, you know, high school and college players? Um, yeah, I mean, it really depends because there's different versions of young, right? I mean, we use, I think we mentioned Soroka already, but he's however young he is, but you know, he acts like he's 35, mm -hmm. no offense to Mike if he's listening, but, um, he's very mature and he can handle all the numbers and, uh, he has a ton of feel with what he wants to do with each pitch. There's other guys who come up and they might have all the raw stuff in the world. Um, but if they can't harness it, if they can't throw it for strikes, if they, they can't repeat their delivery. Uh, maybe they're constantly hurt. They're always sore. Their elbows bugging them, whatever it might be. Uh, their spin rate on their fastball is really the least of, of our concerns at that point. Uh, we want to get them to a point where they're nice and durable. They can throw. If they're a starter, they're throwing in the minor leagues, you know, 130, 140, 150 innings per year. Um, they're building up. They can make all their starts. Um, and then we can really start to go from there once they put together the track record for us to say, you know what, we've seen this pitch over the course of a year. Um, it needs to be improved either its command, its location, its movement, whatever it may be. Um, but the first thing for those guys is we need to build a really solid foundation on what their delivery does and what their body allows them to do. Let's talk about outliers. Now that we've just talked about trying to find consistency, you know, I think 
uh, so many people often make a mistake of trying to coach people to the average. Um, you know, so I, I always allude to, there was a study that, you know, Reinhold, um, and colleagues did, I think it was 2009 where they looked at, you know, basically range of motion changes in, in major league throwing shoulders, um, after outings and the average, uh, basically, uh, range of motion at the shoulder internal plus external rotation was about 191 degrees, but there was a pretty massive standard deviation. I think it was like 14 degrees where, you know, you have people that were substantially tighter than that and people that were substantially looser than that. So, you know, the, the take home point is that, you know, if you just focus on the average, you, you are doing a terrible job of preparing a, a good chunk of the people because you're giving them the opposite of what they need. So, you know, with you, you often probably see from a mechanical standpoint, people who get coached to the average and in the process, it takes away what makes them unique and successful. Can you give some examples of where this has been, you know, readily apparent in your work with pitchers this off season? Um, yeah, so I think like one of the coolest things was, uh, over January and February is when we're rolling, you know, 40, maybe 45 arms, mm -hmm. uh, over the course of a week, everyone's throwing bullpens, some guys are throwing live, whatnot. Um, but you start to almost like lose this understanding of what average even means mm -hmm. when you're dealing with the elite guys, because they do so many things that make you scratch your head and say like, I don't, I don't understand that in the slightest. Um, and like a discussion we, we had at one point was that movement, when you're talking about movement and movement efficiency, it's very individualistic. Um, so like the way I, like I kind of think about it and I've explained this to some people who they come in and they want to like this picture perfect model of mechanics and in an effort to try and explain them that their body may not move in a way that allows them to achieve that. Um, the analogy I use or like, the idea I use is if we set up, you know, 10 yards of turf and we set up hurdles at the five yard mark across the turf. So you can't go around the hurdles, but you have to either go over, go under them, whatever. And we asked Steve Ciszek to figure out a way to get from yard zero to yard 10. Um, and then we asked Anna Cressy to figure out how to go from yard zero to yard 10. Um, because of the height of that hurdle, if we say it's right around, I don't know, four foot 10, Anna's going to duck under that hurdle and Steve would probably want to step over that hurdle. And to each of them, that was like the most efficient path to get from point A to point B. Um, but they're two completely different ways of solving that problem. And when we talk about the delivery, like we have to understand the same thing, uh, the, how stiff someone is or, or how loose someone is. Uh, whether we're talking about lower half, upper half, shoulder, hip, knee, ankle, whatever it is, that's going to dictate how they move on the mound. So having this idea of, you know what, this is what a delivery should look like, it doesn't work with a lot of those elite athletes because they've either adapted to certain positions or their body just doesn't allow them to get into certain ones, so they've created new ones. Um, so like certain example, like I'll, if we want to use Soroka again, um, because of his uniqueness, like kid from Canada, grew up playing hockey, has adapted some interesting positions as far as like how he creates power, um, especially on the insides of his legs. If we think about how hockey players and skates and how they move, uh, he can get into some very funky and aggressive knee and ankle positions because those are positions that he grew up creating power in. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at that delivery without having any prior knowledge, you may look at that and be like, well, 
you know, he doesn't do a really good job of keeping his direction of the plate because his knee drifts forward and he tilts way back with his shoulders and his arm swings really long and whatnot. But you do his eval and you understand, like, oh, he's got some pretty good ankles. He has a pretty funky straight leg raise. He has a really flat spine, so he can get into these extended positions a lot easier than maybe someone like a Brad Hand who's stiff through his T-spine. He's a little stiffer in the adductor groin region, so Brad's going to have a nice tight stride. Um, he's not going to want to let that knee drift forward too much. We're going to try and limit how much he lets that leg drift away from him. Um and all those little differences, that all comes out of the eval, and that all comes out of us just watching them move in the gym. Absolutely. So cir- circling back to the data, you and Cap have been going down a very, you know, some big rabbit holes this winter. Um, fill us in on a few of them that have, that have jumped out at you. Um, so I guess there's like two, two good ones we've liked. Um, the first one would be looking at horizontal and vertical release points. So trying to understand how changes in a vertical and horizontal release um, can help explain what was going on in the delivery. So really it would be how the delivery is affecting uh, changes in the horizontal and vertical release. So um, if you have a guy who, if we're going to use round numbers, let's say his vertical release is 70 um, and his horizontal is 30. Those are relatively average i would say the 30 is a little bit closer to third base than normal um if he goes and his he has one outing and he goes out and his vertical stays at 70 but now his horizontal is at 35 some people may look at that and say well his arm slot the arm slot moved and we know arm slot doesn't really work in isolation like that so if we see that the horizontal changes we know that there's something in his lower half direction that changed with it. So if he moved five inches to the right, his arm didn't just on its own decide to do that. That's either his back legs taking him in a different spot. Maybe there's some stiffness in some places that's forcing him to land a little bit more closed. Um, whatever it is, there's a five inch change and it's due to the direction his lower half is taking his upper half. Um, Another example would be if we see the vertical go up. So if he's at, was previously at 70 and 30, and now that vertical goes up to 75 and the horizontal goes down to 25. He's now moving back towards the center of the rubber and he's moving up. So that's more of what people would visually say, oh, that's an arm slot change. But we know from looking at video that that's more of a trunk tilt change. Yeah. So that can be a couple of things that could be either the lower half is swinging, maybe a little more open and pulling the upper half along with it, or maybe the lower half is staying a little more closed. And if it's a guy who's a little bit more extended, he's used to being over the top. He now fights this urge to stay on that line and he wants to start to peel his upper body back towards first base dugout. So that slot is going to climb five inches up and it's going to climb five inches towards his left. We're talking about a right-handed pitcher. Um, and then the last example would be if we're going to see someone who's horizontal stays relatively the same, but the vertical changes. And that's generally going to be more if we're talking like a pitch-to-pitch change. So um, guys are going to climb their slot on a curveball. Uh, they may drop their slot on a changeup or a slider. That's usually more of a specific variation in literally their arm slot so how they feel that they're throwing the ball so guys without realizing it when they think curveball they want to try and climb that hand a lot closer to their head that's how they get on top of it 
Um, we just put an Instagram post out. I think it was last week on Josh James's changeup, where Josh's changeup is a is five inches lower uh, than his fastball, and it's about five inches more towards third. So that's a combination of both. So he drops that slot to help him create the tilt on the ball to make it a really effective changeup. Um, but he also lets his lower half direction take him a little bit more towards third base. And when you're talking about a pitch that you're trying to create a little more arm side run, a little more depth to it, um, that's a fine thing for him to do. And the pitch is incredibly effective. Um, so that's something we kind of are just going to let that go. And you know, the other thing, too, is you, all the data backs it up. But effectively, that kind of undermines the concept of pitch tunneling, doesn't it? Yeah, so that was something that was um, pretty interesting. And, and that actually goes into the next one of the next rabbit holes we, we did a lot of searching in or spent a lot of time in was uh, something called vertical approach angle, uh, which is measured on track, man. Um, and that's the angle the ball enters the zone. Um, so when you're talking about trying to like normalize just how hitters see the ball, that's something to take into account. And it usually helps us understand when you see a guy who's maybe throwing 98, um, but the ball's getting hit all around the yard. If he's throwing that ball and it's entering on a very average plane, so I think the average this year was around negative five. Um, so if he's going to throw that ball that enters at a negative five-degree angle, um, that's something the hitter is perfectly prepared to hit. He's very used to seeing it. Um, he's probably taken a ton of swings off that in a batting cage because, again, it's a perfectly average angle. Um, and they'll hit that pitch all day long. If you're a guy who maybe has a little bit of a lower slot, um, maybe you're a little bit shorter. Um, it's easier for you to have that ball enter on a much flatter plane. So anything closer to zero. Um, so guys like Josh Hader, Josh Hader is someone who has one of the flattest approach angles in the league. It's like a negative 3.6. Yep. Um, that's what helps explain a lot of those swings and misses. Obviously the velos there, there's some vertical break. There's a lot of funk to it. That ball enters on such a flat plane that it's tough for the hitter to hit. Just to confirm, like that makes for a scenario where a spin axis might be markedly different than what you expect, right? So, you know, traditional righty throwing a four seam might be like a 12 to one spin axis. And you'll see guys that, that creep down, you know, between one and two. In many cases, that changes that approach angle and it might make that four seam play up. And I'm thinking of Scherzer right off the top of my head because it is, you know, similar to Hader, obviously from the opposite side in that capacity. He gets a lot of swings on four seams up because his approach angle is, is so different and the, the fastball still has a ton of carry. Is that correct? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that it goes back to that changeup where. We're not talking literally how the ball is coming out of the hand, but it matters a lot more what the ball looks like when it's about 25 feet from the plate, which is where they have to make the decision, um, and then where the ball is entering the zone. So there's guys who, someone like Max, if you look at that tilt on some of his fastballs, he's, he's in that like one, even 115 range, which isn't the best tilt if you're trying to maximize vertical break. Just straight vertical break, but because that slot is a little bit lower, he can ride that ball up in the zone a lot easier than if he were to throw a true 12-15, 12-30 tilted four seam where he'd have a lot of vertical break, but the slot may be higher and it's tougher him to throw it up. So that was a very good example. I like it. Um, what's the weirdest thing you saw on, on one of these? You mentioned Josh's changeup. Anything else? You don't have to mention a player by name, but give, give me some stuff that blew your mind from an analytics standpoint. Um, well, if we'd 
I don't, I guess I won't use his name, but, um, we had one change up that, um, if we just evaluated it off of the pitch characteristics, it would have been one of the, one of the poorer changeups we saw. Um, but the effectiveness of it, so the contact, the swing and miss, um, for this one, it was actually a pop-up percentage, which kind of tipped it off. Um, it was really effective, but what was happening was, this was a guy who threw balls more down in the zone, um, more of a sinker, was actually throwing a changeup like up and above his sinker. So if you think of a guy who throws a really good sinker, that ball is always plummeting down. So to throw a changeup that's working underneath your fastball that's already working underneath the zone, you, you, it's really tough to do, but you have to throw that thing in the dirt all the time. So he actually went the reverse and threw like a rise ball and it had more spin. The spin rate was higher than the fastball. Uh, it was about a 10 mile an hour difference in the velo. Um, it had a super high pop up rate. So when you think of change up, there's usually run in sync. So when guys put them in play, they're going to be rollover ground balls. Um, this was the opposite. Guys were swinging underneath it and popping it up. Um, so something to kind of go back to that data stuff, if you're going to evaluate that pitch just off of what the computer is saying on how it's moving, it's like a pretty average to below average pitch. Um, but to go back to what the hitter sees and what they're expecting, they're expecting against this guy, they're expecting everything to run in sync. So they see that thing that looks like a fastball and it just kind of floats its way up to the plate and they get a pop-up. I like it. All right. So when people ask me what differentiates us from other facilities or organizations, you know, and, and historically we've effectively had to compete with major league baseball organizations for guys in the off season, particularly as, you know, they built multi-million dollar facilities and, you know, had all the amenities in house. You know, when people ask what differentiates us, I've always said it's synergy. It's because we communicate with each other and we make sure all the pieces fit together. You know, I think a big part of the evaluations that you and Cap are doing on the pitching side of things is building on what we see in the initial movement screen and the injury histories. Can you speak a little bit to why this is important and, and you know, how it can make such a big difference? Um, yeah, so, I mean, as pitching coaches, we – needs to understand what the athlete's body is capable of before we ask them to make any adjustment. So when someone comes in and, you know, we sit down with them and do that initial consult, once that consult's over, uh, if we don't have that information already, um, we'll go straight to whoever did the eval. Uh, we'll pull up the eval notes off the drive. We'll talk to them a little bit. Um, we want to get an understanding on things as basic as range of motion. So, are they hypermobile? Are they stiff? Are they loose? Like, where do they fall on that spectrum? Um, but also, like, what's their postural presentation? What do their joints feel like at end range? How much room is there in there? Uh, what's their overall movement quality? Um, and then a lot of other things that you're going to understand from conversations with them. So what's their injury history? Where do they normally get sore? What's their past weightlifting experience? What are things that they like to do in season versus what do they not like to do in season? Um, that's important for us as pitching coaches, but also as strength coaches, because we're kind of tailoring, especially at the beginning of this off season, we're trying to tailor this four to five month journey for them where these two areas are going to be working in conjunction with each other. So we need to make sure that the throwing program and the lifting program are on the same page. And basic example of that is that if we have a guy who comes in and we think he wants to be more of an aggressive thrower. So if he wants to do some weighted balls, if he wants to do long toss, if he wants to do pens sooner rather than later, uh, 
Um, and we think it might be in his best interest to do that on a Wednesday. Um, but you or Tim or Shane or whoever's doing the program writes him a pretty good upper body lift on a Tuesday. Every day when he rolls in on Wednesday, he might be a little sore. He might be a little tight. So those two programs are kind of butting heads right there. So we always try and get together with whoever's writing the program uh, right at the beginning, pick each other's brains a little bit. What do we think they need on the strength side? What do we think they need on the pitching side? Um, and then as the off season's going on, we're always going to check in, try and figure out how they're doing on the mound and how that's relating to what we're seeing in the gym. So if we see something on the mound that we maybe think they're having a lot of trouble with foot ankle stability as they work down the slope, um, that could be something that we really want to overcoach them in split stance and single leg exercises and make sure they understand how to put tension in the ground, where they're trying to create force, stuff like that. Um, we also need to understand like how do these guys recover differently, uh, especially from a soft tissue perspective. Um, so that's where Shane gets brought in the loop a little bit too. Uh, if we know a guy's a bullpen on a Wednesday, um, and Tuesday afternoon, Shane's dropping elbows and QL and glue meat and God knows what else. Uh, that guy might walk in Wednesday and he may not feel well enough to really throw a pen. Or we may have opened up a ton of range of motion that he doesn't have control over yet. Um, so we're always kind of trying to just circle around the gym and do the rounds and find out, obviously, how the player's feeling, but always check in with whoever's writing the program um, and see where they're at there. I love that. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this from like, you know, obviously we've, we've addressed this much, maybe more from a coaching standpoint and analytics standpoint. Let's talk about players, right? So there are going to be a lot of athletes that are listening to this who might never meet you or have a chance to tap into your expertise. What are some of the questions that they can ask to be advocates for themselves? What can they do, um, to, to push those who are working with them to help them in these same regards? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, we already mentioned it, but we need to always understand what their body's capable of. So when it comes to being your own coach, you know, you need to know that information as well. So um, and guys aren't always in the right setting to do it. But if you're able to get close to a strength coach or an athletic trainer, physical therapist, manual therapist, someone who has an ability to assess and evaluate, um, whether it's any sort of movement screen, you could be talking about FMS, we could be doing TPI, on base U, you name it. Um, anything that's going to be able to give the athlete a little bit more information as to how they move just from a functional standpoint. Um, cause that'll help guide them a little bit more, especially from a warm up perspective. Um, so if you're someone like Mike King, who's hypermobile as all get out, uh, he can come to the field and he needs to do some stability stuff before he starts throwing. Uh, if we throw him into a regular stretching program or a traditional warm-up program, um, we're actually making him looser and that's not what he needs. Uh, opposite's obviously true for someone stiff. So if you're in college, if you're in high school, if you can at least get an understanding of where you think you fall in that range, um, you can start to understand how to warm up and maybe how you need to structure your training as well. So to tie in the, the Reinhold study you, you mentioned, there's guys who are going to gain range of motion. There's guys who are going to lose range of motion. Um, if you're someone that over, over the course of the season, you understand what category you might fall in, that's going to help you dictate what your training sessions might be like between outings um, and also what your throwing sessions might be like between outings. If you're a guy who's rapidly gaining range of motion, going out the day after you throw it, a long toss 300 feet, probably not in your best interest. 
Um, if you're a guy who stiffens up really easily, it might be a good idea for you to maybe try and get a lift in the next day, get some blood flow and play catch, move it around. Um, a lot of that's personal preference, obviously, but it all starts with understanding what your body needs and wants. I love that. All right. So you are the guy responsible for the, the, uh, epic posts on the CSB Florida, uh, pitching Instagram. So folks can <laughs> find you. It's at CSPFL underscore pitching. Um, you don't post often, but when you do, they're whoppers and they, they share a ton of insights. They really should be newsletters in themselves. <laughs> Fol- folks can also find you on Twitter. It's at Mark underscore Lowy. That's L O W Y. So feel free to heckle him on Twitter. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time, man. We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.